There is something of a of a disconnect to our Easter celebrations. What I mean by that is, well, imagine this this image of two individuals trying to communicate from one another. Each comes from a different world, a different culture, a different nation. Um, they're, they're speaking the same words, speaking the same words, yet at the same time have with two entirely different meanings behind the words. So just kind of talking over, talking past one another. Uh, with a, a disconnect, I guess you could say. And we're pertaining to Easter, here's what we have. On, on the one hand, on the one hand, we have um, peeps and pastels and promises of um, hope transformed and coming out of darkness and new beginnings and new starts and new opportunities anchored in nothing. And over here, we have the story of a dead man raised because of whom the whole world has been flipped on its head. Over here, we have something that's nice and polite and family-friendly and user-friendly and ultimately forgettable. Over here, we have something bold, new, and life-transforming. This disconnect between Easter in quotes and the real Easter of, of can I say, of reality. Now, we're just going to ignore this one. This one we need to drill down into. We need to drill down deeply in, into this one. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, this is the third of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, yeah, right, all the rest. But we're just looking at Luke, the third book of the New Testament, third of the four Gospels. Luke chapter 24, it's the last chapter in the book of Luke. Uh, this is kind of midway in some resurrection uh, appearances that Jesus is making over the course of that first Easter Sunday. Uh, Luke 24, picking up in verse 36 and just reading to verse 43. So that's our text, Luke 24, beginning in verse 36 and on through verse 43. Hear now the word of God. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Can we pray for just a moment? Lord, thank you for these songs that we have sung and the readings that we have heard. Uh, really, that would have been time well spent and worth coming out this morning for just by itself. We thank you that we have a bit more time. We thank you uh, for the opportunity to to drill down uh, into this particular passage. 
Uh, we thank you for inspiring it, uh, for working in Luke such that in, in the mystery and the miraculous ways uh, of the, script, the way that you have uh, brought forth the Holy Scriptures, that there is nothing more and, and nothing less than what you wanted to be recorded here before us. Uh, we ask now uh, that you would give us truly ears with which to hear. Give us the ability to, to understand and understand deeply um, in a way that is uh, persuasive to the mind and transformative to the heart and apparent in the will and in the life. We are asking this, O oh Jesus, you have the resurrection, you have the empty tomb. Amen. I want to talk about shockwaves for a moment. Um, we had a shock wave in the news just a few days ago. The United States Air Force dropped a Moab on a mountain complex there in Afghanistan that was suspected of hiding some ISIS fighters in there. A Moab, in case you, you don't know, uh, stands for Massive Ordnance Air Blast. That's the technical term. The slang term is Mother of All Bombs. Moab. Uh, it is a 21,000-pound bomb that explodes just a few feet over the ground and sends out a concussive blast. And when you do this over a mountain cave complex, the shock waves of that explosion are going to reverberate down, in, reaching into all the entrails of that tunnel system, obliterating everything that it touches. That's a shock wave. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, we read this just a few minutes ago, speaks of another kind of a shock wave. Uh, if you're trying, you don't need to turn there in your, your Bible. It's actually there in your bulletin. It's right there on, on this half of the page. In the beginning of that second paragraph, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now what he means there when he says something of first importance, he means first things, principal things of the highest order, something that is overall that speaks to all, that reshapes all, what would that be? Well, if you keep reading, you of course come to see he's speaking of Jesus' death and resurrection, a shock wave that uh, leaves absolutely nothing untouched by the blast radius. A completely different kind, of course, that Paul is speaking. My point, my point being simply this, that Easter should be celebrated. Easter should be celebrated. I mean, the pastels, the chocolate bunnies, the colored eggs, the fresh duds. I mean, it's all, it's great. It's fine. Easter should be celebrated, but never trivialized. Never compartmentalized, sentimentalized, marginalized, or spiritualized. The resurrection of Jesus should never be Trivialize. It is a significant event, a one of uh, it is an event of enormous significance. And I say event because it happened, an historical event in spot, time and space. It is something that happened. And it, it is a, of consequence, enormous significance. Therein should never, in the slightest, be trivialized, played down, marginalized, whatever. How do, why do I say that? How do we see that in our text? Well, in three ways I want to look at for the next few minutes. First being the, the historicity of the resurrection. Secondly, the centrality of the resurrection. And then thirdly, finally, 
the physicality of the resurrection. I'll explain what I mean by each one of those as we go. Those things, any one of them, would stand by itself, but those three things together are something of a chorus speaking to us this morning, of singing to us this morning, of the significance, the abiding, enormous significance of the resurrection. Let's look at these in turn. First, the historicity of the resurrection. How do we see that playing itself out here in this text? Firstly, we see in the coherency of the response of the disciples. We get a hint of the reality, the historicity, the fact that it happened. So, their initial reaction, um, the stages. Well, Luke 24 uh, is the, the uh, Jesus' resurrection. It's unfolded for us in three stages, verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to read that right now, but uh, if you go back and look at that, what you see is this is the empty tomb, verses 1 through 12. Then verses 13 through 35, we see Jesus' actual appearance to do two disciples on the road to this little village known as Emmaus. And then you pick up in verse 36, where we are now, on through verse 43, and you have the disciples gathered there, there in Jerusalem comparing notes. The two uh, folks from on the Emmaus Road are there. Others that have remained in Jerusalem are there. They're comparing notes saying, look, this is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. And, and they're, they're talking. They're speaking. Jesus shows up. Now, we know what this is like. It's one thing to be told of something. It's a whole other deal to then experience it, see it. In a, in a real sort of way. So, how do they react to his appearing? Let's look at verses 36 and 37. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, we might be uh, surprised by their surprise, but it's a completely natural reaction, right? Especially to someone who's alive, whom they saw, dead just a few days before. So their initial reaction is something, there's a coherency to that. Then there's all, you keep reading, and it's, it's not just um, uh, that, but a slowness to grasp. So there's, there's a shock, a surprise, and a slowness to grasp what's happened. You keep reading down to verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat. Uh, their response, when, when Luke says uh, these words, it's difficult to translate, there's different ways to do it, but when he says they disbelieve for joy and were marveling, it's something akin to like a sports team, excuse me, the, the fans of a sports team who are just convinced, they are sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that their team is going to lose and at the, in the last seconds of the game, the winning points are scored and Boom! They've won, and it's shocked. The disbelief for joy. Can't believe, can't get over can hardly get their minds and hearts around what's happened. And we say, well, but shouldn't they have known? Well, yes, at some level they certainly should have, because Jesus had told them, this is what's going to happen to me. They're going to put me to death, and three days later I'm going to rise again. But th this is a category-defying thing. Resurrection from the dead. So they're not expecting it at all. My, my point being, there's a it, when you read through this, just taking the text for the first time, reading it through at face value, it kind of makes sense. It's kind of like, well, okay, I could kind of see how real human beings could respond this way. There's a coherency to their response. But then you keep reading and keep thinking about it, and you realize, but there's also something here that doesn't make sense. Not just a coherency to their response, but a candor 
the candor of the record and the way all this is laid out for us. So some of you may know that the gospel writers through the years have been accused of being just making this up. That this is all just a work of fiction. That this was a power play. That they're trying to start a movement and they're just making all this up whole cloth. Or maybe there's a kernel of truth to it and they just sort of expanded on it. That they're myth makers. But the reality is, if they did it this way, they're very poor myth makers. Think with me. These pillars of the early church, as described here, these disciples there in in Jerusalem, hardly are described and portrayed as heroic figures. Now, if you're trying to build a movement and accumulate power and draw people to this new thing, why would you do it that way? Why would you, why would you construct it in a way that, that portrays the pillars, your leaders, as bumbling, slow to grasp, cowardly, all these kinds of things? Why would you do it that way unless, wait, 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 there's an explanation. Unless it happened that way. And you're just recording events as they unfolded. There's something else here, not just the the, the idea of there being poor myth-makers. There's also something of the puzzling honesty. How how transparent they are. These writers, Luke and the the folks that he has spoken to, that then he is uh, accumulating and assimilating their testimony and putting it here before us in Luke 24, they're owning it. They're acknowledging their failures and their slowness of heart, and, and all of that, and just and, and they're laying it out for all the world to see. And that's just not normal. I mean, I mean, raise your hand, really. Are we quick to do that? To own it? To lay out our failures before all the world to see in a transparent sort of way? No, not at all. So, you have, so how could that be? Why would they do that? What could possibly... That's not natural at all. Could something have happened to make them able, willing, desirous, impelling them to do such a thing. My point being, there's a historicity to the account of the resurrection therein helping us to see the significance of it and building the case for the significance of it all the more. Now, I'm just scratching the surface here. And we don't have time to, to go into anything else. Okay? There's a lot of other things you can look at, read, uh, I can point. We can point you in certain directions to to see some good stuff. But we, well, I'm, I, we haven't even talked about, nor are we going to talk about, the multitude of ancient manuscripts, the outside attestations from the the, the ancient world that bear out everything that we're seeing here. Archaeology. We're not talking here about the likelihood of when these documents were written and the identity of the first witnesses and the number of witnesses that were on hand that could have uh, backed up the claims and, and all of that. We're not, we haven't even talked about uh, the origins of the early church and how that would have begun if this isn't real. How does it get started? And then how does it survive unless, in fact, this is actually real? We haven't even touched it. I've heard it said wisely, and I, I think this is absolutely the case. It takes more faith to disbelieve this, such as the mountain of evidence. It takes more faith to disbelieve this than to believe it. When you really begin to delve deeply into this, my point being, there are credible reasons to be a Christian. You do not have to check your brain at the door. Not at all. 
And, and, and I would say that I would encourage you to drill down. Drill down into these things. If you're skeptical, then be skeptical about your skepticism. Question your questions. Re-examine your assumptions. Take a look at the evidence here. Examine it. Don't trivialize it. This, if true, is an event of such enormous consequence and significance, we dare not. We dare not. That takes me to the second thing. The centrality of the resurrection. So if, in fact, there's a historicity, then we must consider its implications. We must consider then its meaning, its significance, the centrality of the, the resurrection, like dropping a, a stone in a pond and the ripples going out into, into everything, that idea of a shock wave that I mentioned earlier. Now, I, we could spend literally hours talking about this and hardly exhaust the possibilities of, of areas that we could speak to. I just want to go into three. Three, just, just quickly, uh, in terms of the centrality, the significance, all of that. The victory of Jesus. What does the resurrection show us? What are its implications? The victory of Jesus. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. There's no body there. Which tells us if the tomb is empty, his triumph is clear. Not only has he engaged the forces of darkness, he has beaten them down into the ground. The victory of Jesus. That's what, partly at least what the resurrection tells us. There's something else here. The forgiveness of our sin. Uh, what it is in fact, in, or you could say in fact, he has won for us. The forgiveness of our sin. Let me take a step back. Think about it this way. Satan, Satan is, a, is, a, is a liar. Scriptures describe him as a, as a liar, a deceiver, an accuser. So over the course of your days... In that moment, when he is whispering into your ear, okay, that's it. Now you've done it. This is what is finally going to drive you from the love of God and his love from you. You've gone too far this time. The answer to that sinister voice at that moment, that thought, it goes something like this. You don't know the half of it. As bad as you're portraying me, or I'm portraying myself, in this moment, I am so much worse. But I am not relying on my work, my record, my strength. I am relying on Jesus' record, His work, His strength on my behalf. He died in my place. The Father has made me one with the Son. He died in my place, and I have been risen with him. So Satan, go to hell. The victory of Jesus, securing the forgiveness of our sins, and locking down a hope for our future. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we read earlier of uh, Jesus' resurrection as being described as the first fruits of our own. What does that mean? Very few of us probably grew up in an agrarian context and, and would understand anything of what that might entail. The first fruits in, in that context were understood in, in two ways, and it's, this is significant for us. If Jesus, is, his resurrection is the first fruits, it means this. It means it is, one, a promise of a harvest to come. A, it, it, when, when, when the first fruit of the crop of the harvest has come forth, you know then there's more coming. 
It's the first fruit. It's a sign. It's an indication. It's a guarantee. It's a promise of what is yet to come down the road. That's one. That, that in and of itself is significant, but that's not all. It's also an indication of, a sign of, a glimpse of what's to come. So there's the certainty and then also a glimpse. We can see in Jesus, in his resurrection, what's coming, not just what's coming, but what's coming for us. And the whole of the created order, such as the consequence and the significance of the resurrection. I want to talk about that a little bit more in the third point, but I just want that's, that's your teaser. So just hang on. The centrality, though, the centrality of the resurrection points us in the, to see, helps us to see the enormity of this, uh, the significance of this event. But, but I wonder, do we see it? Even, even Christians, some, a lot of you I know, of course, are, and, and even Christians who've heard this, and this is the umpteenth time you've attended a Sunday morning service on Easter. Do we grasp the significance of what we're talking about here. We talk a lot about distracted drivers, right? Uh, just this past week, I was on my way. I don't remember if it was on the way to Nashville or from Nashville. I think it was around the exit 11 area, that much I remember. I saw a man, I'm not making this up. I wish I was. He's got his lighter in one hand, his cigarette in the other hand, his cell phone cocked between his ear and his shoulder, and I... I think I know what he's driving with, his thighs, on the interstate. Now, we agree that, of course, is absurd, that level of distracted driving, but to what degree are we guilty, and I guilty, of you, are we guilty of, of distracted living? Never stopping to think. Never stopping to reflect. Never stopping to engage, just moving on from one thing to another as though we're just all through life, not just on the couch, but our very lives are typified by channel surfing. Or just our phones. Just flipping, flipping, flipping from the next week. We can't sit still. We refuse to, even when we're sitting still, we're not still. We are, we are willing to, to numb ourselves into distraction, busy ourselves flitting from this to this to this, and never focusing on anything. Distracted living. Oh, we desperately need to think these things through and work out the significance, the centrality of the resurrection, its implications, the shockwave effect that it has on every aspect of life. Nothing untouched. Nothing untouched. Oh, that we would spend time on that. Mustn't trivialize. Trivialize. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, it is an event of enormous, enormous significance. Which then takes me to this last point, and that is the physicality of the resurrection. This is what I was teasing on a few minutes ago. This is a, a major emphasis, it would seem, for Luke, who, by the way, was a doctor. Um, for Dr. Luke, a great historian of the ancient world, Luke, as he's recording this, uh, is speaking to the physicality of the resurrection, and it comes out in several ways here that are well worth our considering just the fact of it and then, again, the implications of it. Now, how do we see that? Well, first off, in some intentional actions that Jesus takes. Jesus intends for, for these first, uh, these early disciples to be the first witnesses, the heralds, the evangelists, going forth with this message of the empty tomb, the resurrection. 
With that in mind, they have to know it. They have to have embraced it for themselves. And so he wants them to see it. By, by the way, the stone rolled away. You know, that wasn't rolled away so he could get out. That was so we could look in. He didn't need the stone to be rolled away to get out. The stone needs to be rolled away for us to look in and see that, in fact, it's empty. And in a way, he's helping them to see the emptiness of it and the reality of his presence with us. And so with that in mind, he well, let's just look at some of the things that go on here. Verse 38, um, we read uh, verses 38 to 40. I'm going to read it again. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So to meet, to counter, to address their troubles and their doubts, he shows them his scars. He shows them his, his scars. But then he keeps moving. He's moving towards them, pressing this reality on them even harder. Picking up in verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, what would the effect of this been upon them? That they would have recognized that what has appeared before them is not a ghostly apparition, but Jesus' very physical self. He can be seen, he can be touched, he can eat. If, if, if there was dust on the floor, his, his feet would have left footprints. He's not levitating, he's standing. There are shadows behind him from where the light is shining. He is standing there, physically present with the disciples in that moment. And they're coming to, to recognize that he is not a ghost. It is, in fact, he himself. And he is intentionally, very intentional about it, making them, helping them to see this. Now, that, okay, so there's other ways that we see this, the physicality. And it comes out in some emphasis of Luke the narrator, just the way that he puts this before us. Clearly, this is something that we've got to, got to see. Uh, verse 36, just the way he phrases this, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Luke doesn't say, as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them. He makes a point stressing it. Jesus himself, Jesus himself, lest you miss it, Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus' own words, something he says, sounds very much like this. Verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. He doesn't say, see my hands and my feet, that it's me. That it's I myself. It's him. It's him. It's really him. The risen, glorified Christ is the same as Jesus of Nazareth. One and the same. Now, yes, there are differences. Yes, there are differences because now his, in his glorified body, he can suddenly appear and disappear whenever he wants to. That said, it's still him. It's still him. There is a physicality to the resurrection, and that has enormous significance. I'm going to throw the curveball at you and I explain it. Docetism is alive and well and needs to be put down. You're kind of like, what? Docetism. An ancient heresy of the early church comes from a Greek word which means to appear or seem like. And the heresy went like this. 
that Jesus, yes, was fully God, he was fully divine, but he only appeared to be a man. He only seemed to have a physical body. The ancient councils and creeds pushed right back at that and said, that's, that's a reason you call that a heresy. This is wrong. It's utterly wrong. He's risen with a physical body. He died with a physical death. He's raised with a physical body. There's it's a physicality to the resurrection, which means at least these two things. First, everything matters. Everything matters. Your whole self matters. Your soul and your body. Your whole self matters. Your whole life matters. Not just Sunday. Every day. Every aspect of your life, your whole life matters. Your hobbies, your career path, the decisions that you're making about your, your education, your love life, all of it matters. Your whole self, your whole life, this whole world matters because he is the risen king. The risen ruling king over everything. Everything matters. That's the first thing. And here's the follow-up. This is a message for everyone. This is a message for everyone. Or can I put it this way? There are indeed things worth fighting for. There are things in this world that do matter. Christian ethics lands hard with feet on the ground. So you're concerned with, let me just throw out some, some samples, with racism, with poverty, with sexual trafficking, with your concerns about the environment, and cruelty to animals. Good. The gospel, the reality of the resurrection, gives you cause to be concerned about those things and direction in which to move. More so than any other worldview, philosophy, or religion out there. Because Christian ethics lands with feet. Everything matters. Matter matters. There's a physicality to the resurrection. And I'm going to push even further here, if I may. It frees us, the resurrection frees us to live and, and pursue these passions of ours without any sense of regret. Now, we're all filled and fearful with tinges of regret, and we're anxious about it. We're afraid we're going to miss out. And, and so we, we've been told, you know, that you only go around once in this life. So, you know, bucket list and all of that. And so we play it safe. We hedge our bets because we think we only go around once. And so we've got to be careful about what we give ourselves to, we're afraid we're going to miss out. But what if it was we learned, in fact, you don't go around just once? What if we could see something, learn something, find something that would free us to live boldly and sacrificially, knowing there's no chance we're going to miss anything? That the end of your days, it's not bridge out, but a runway. That's what the resurrection shows us. The resurrection is huge. 
with its implications. And the physicality of the resurrection, the fact that matter matters, that everything matters. Oh, that we would not trivialize this, that we, rather we would see its enormous consequences and significance. Some of you are familiar with the, the uh, notion of historical revisionism. Uh, the idea with that being uh, you know, a, a reinterpretation of the historical record. And then normally that's meant in a pejorative, critical kind of sense. Oh, stupid historical revisionists. We kind of rant and rave and all that stuff. But, but you know, actually it's fairly common. And, and, and most of the times it's not controversial. Let me give you a case study. George Washington and the cherry tree. Some of you are going to be crushed, I know, by the time I'm <laughs> the next, you're going to be depressed within the next 60 seconds by the time I'm done. Okay, so here's the story that we were told uh, for decades and beyond that, you know, the, the McGruffy Reader and all of those things that preceded that. I mean, we were told of this story, little George, six, eight, somewhere in there, who uh, decides to take his little hatchet to the cherry tree on the boyhood, his boyhood farm after his parents explicitly told him not to do so. His father, you know, sees the tree, confronts George. George responds by saying, what? I cannot tell a lie, and tells all. Well, it seems that it never happened. Sorry, I'm glad you're sitting down. It never actually happened. It was all a fabrication of an early biographer who, sadly enough, was a pastor, but that's another story, um, of an early biographer who's trying to build up and bolster the case for Washington's uh, reputation and everything else. In fact, archaeologists in 2008 went to the grounds of Washington's boyhood home there in Virginia and found no evidence whatsoever of cherry trees there. Um, and, and you can go to any reputable website, Mount Vernon's included, by the way, and they will tell you, nice story, all a fabrication. Okay, what in the world is the point of telling you that? Well, what if, well, let me ask you this. By my telling you this, maybe you already knew it, um, has, has your sense of Washington's place in history taken a hit? Really, I mean, no. I mean, really, it's, learning that has taken, it has no impact whatsoever in George Washington's standing in the flow of, you know, the father of our country and, and, and all of Things. But what if, what if historians said, you know, well, actually, I, we think it should. And we think, actually, you know, yes, he was an historical figure, but he's actually not that significant. And, yeah, you know, really, it's interesting, worth studying, kind of quizzical and all that stuff, you know, wooden teeth and whatever that was. But interesting, but actually irrelevant. Um, his, his accomplishments and his standing and the flow of the, the nation. Yeah, it's, no, not so much. What would you say? You'd say, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. That's historical revisionism gone off the rails. You'd be right. Well, here's the thing. Our view of the resurrection of Jesus has somehow gone through some historical revisionism. And our own view. Even those of us who would raise our hand and say, yeah, I, I believe in it. Somehow, because of cultural, societal pressures and, and satanic schemes and the pliability of our own minds and hearts and willingness to buy well, into certain tales. We have found ourselves at the, on the, at the end of, of, of this, and that is somehow the most significant event in the history of the world since the creation of the world has become insignificant to us and trivial in its effect. Oh, my friends, this is really good news. And it's real. 
It's real. And it's, it's a fact. It can change your life to the degree that you will hear it and take it in. Don't let yourself be deceived. Don't let yourself be deluded. Don't you let yourself be robbed or rooked of this gift, of this treasure, of this, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. An event of enormous significance. Let's pray together. Almighty Savior...